In our last episode, we were left with a heart-wrenching revelation. After the kidnappers' repeated calls, Cherie's family was directed to a specific location. The hope of finding her alive was shattered when they discovered she had been gone for days. In this episode, we'll take a step back to piece together the events leading up to this moment, ensuring every detail is clear as we move forward with Sherry's case. The next morning, Wednesday, June 5th at 11.45 a.m., the kidnapper called again. This time, Sherry's mother, Hilda, answered, and the call was extremely brief. Hilda, hello? Kidnapper, Listen carefully. Take Highway 378 west of Traffic Circle. Take Prosperity Exit. Go one and a half miles. Turn right at Sign. Masonic Lodge number 103. Go one quarter mile. Turn left at White Frame Building. Go to Backyard. Six feet beyond. We're waiting. God chose us. Police immediately raced from the Smith home to the location described in nearby Saluda County about 16 miles away. Sherry's decomposing body was found lying on her back exactly where he described, in a wooded area directly behind the white building, but there was no trace of the killer. She was still wearing the same clothes she was wearing when abducted, but a few pieces of jewelry were missing. There were remnants of duct tape attached to her face, and parts of her hair had been cut where the duct tape had previously been attached. The killer most likely knew that the duct tape could have left clues for the police. Because of the extreme temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit during the past few days, her body was already decomposing rapidly and there were signs of insect infestation. The medical examiner determined Sherry had been dead for three to four days. Most likely she'd been killed within 12 hours of her abduction. Determining the cause of death was a bit complicated. Because of Sherry's rare form of diabetes, she most likely died of cardiac arrest caused by extreme dehydration. There were also signs of soft ligature strangulation or smothering. Either way, the medical examiner considered it a homicide. The findings present at the autopsy would fit with a number of causes of death. The two most likely causes are extreme dehydration with associated electrolyte imbalance causing cardiac arrest and asphyxia due to soft ligature strangulation or smothering. It is therefore my opinion, in light of the history of the case and the post-mortem and autopsy findings, the cause of death best be left undetermined. As far as the manner of death, since the death occurred during abduction, the manner of death will still be homicide, regardless of whether it is due to depriving the decedent of water or from some type of homicidal asphyxia. All of the previous calls had been placed near the Smith's home, but the most recent call was placed over 45 miles away in Saluda County. Police now believed he might be leaving the area, but that assumption changed when the killer called once again. This time he called a local television reporter for Channel 10, Charlie Keyes. The killer explained that he wanted to turn himself in and wanted to be taken alive. The killer tried to explain his actions. He wanted Keyes to contact Sheriff Metz and arrange for him to give himself up. It just went bad. I know her family and her and, well, I just made a mistake. It went too far. All I wanted to do was make love to her. I didn't know she had the rare disease and it just got out of hand. 
I got scared and I have to do the right thing, Charlie. That same evening at 8.57 p.m., the killer called the Smith home yet again. This time he called Collect. He wanted to let them know how he killed Sherry. In a long and rambling call, the killer explained to Don that he took photos of Sherry while she was standing at the mailbox. He also claimed to have another letter from Sherry and that she was at peace when he killed her, and he said he was a family friend. Then he explained how he raped and sodomized her before he took her life and wavered between turning himself in and suicide. Don and her mother did their best to try to keep him on the line while the police traced the call. What follows are a few excerpts from the long call. Killer. Okay, so this is going to have to be the way that it is. She said that um, she wasn't scared and that she knew she was going to be an angel and that if I took the latter choice, she suggested to me that she would forgive me. But our God's going to be the major judgment and she'll probably end up seeing me in heaven, not in hell. And that um, she requests... Now, please remember this. Now she requests that you all be sure to take her hands and fold them on her stomach like she's praying. Dawn. But Sherry was not afraid and she didn't cry or anything? Killer. No, she didn't do anything. And uh, can you handle it if I tell you how she died? Dawn. Yes? Killer. Okay, now be strong now. Dawn. Okay. Killer. She said you were strong. She told me all about the family and everything. We talked and, oh God, I am a family friend. That's the sad part. Don, you are a family friend? Killer, yeah, and that's why I can't face you all. You, you'll find out in the morning or tomorrow. Killer, okay, I tied her up to the bedpost and, uh, with electric cord and, uh, she didn't struggle or cry or anything. She let me voluntarily, conversation missing, from her chin to her head. Okay, I'll go ahead and tell you. I took duct tape and wrapped it all the way around her head and suffocated her and tell the coroner or get information on how she died. And um, I was unaware that she had this disease. I probably would have never taken her and... uh I shouldn't have taken her anyway. It just got out of hand. And uh, I asked her out before, and she said she would if she wasn't going with anybody. Killer. Okay, now, are there any other questions? I've got to go now. Time is running out. Dawn. Uh, when, when you killed Sherry, was she at peace? She wasn't afraid or anything? Killer. She was not. She was at peace. She knew that God was with her, and she was going to be an angel. Dawn. And she wrote that letter to all of us of her own free will, and that was... Killer. She sure did. Everything I've told you all has been the truth. Hasn't everything come true? Dawn. Yes, it has. Can, can I ask you one more question? Killer. One more, and that's it. Don. You told us that Sherry was kidnapped at gunpoint? Killer. Yeah. Don. But she knew you? Killer. Yeah. At first, see, I pulled up, and I'm telling you the truth. 
I have no reason to lie to y'all. I've always told you the truth, right? Don. Right. Killer. Okay. I had her, asked her to stand there and took two instant pictures. Don. You asked her to stand where? Killer. At the mailbox with her car in the background. These pictures, detailed pictures, will be with with the letter that you receive. Since I'm out of town, probably not till Saturday. And Charlie Keys will get a copy and your family will get a copy. And it's addressed to you unless the mail holds it up. Don. So she didn't realize you were going to kidnap her? Killer. That's exactly right. Don. Why on the fifth day did she want us to find her? Why not? Killer. I don't know. She just, she just said that. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I'm telling you exactly how she died. So she died of suffocation. And so, okay, anything else? Don. Why did you, why did you do that? Killer. She, I gave her a choice to shoot her or give her a drug overdose or suffocate her. Don. Why did you have to kill her? Killer. It got out of hand. I got scared because, uh, only God knows, Don. I don't know why. God forgive me for this, I hope. And I got to straighten out or he'll send me to hell and I'll be there the rest of my life. But I'm not going to be in prison and electric chair. Killer. Oh, yeah, let me tell you. The other night, they almost caught me. The ignorant son of a guns. I wanted them to catch me. I felt that way at the time, but now... Don. When? When was this? Killer. Uh, when I called at 9.45. Don. When you were over near Jake's Landing? Killer. Yeah, I was at that fast fare thing. Don. Yeah. Killer. I pulled out 20 yards in front of two flashing lights. Don. What color car did you have? Killer. They hit it dead on, red, and they didn't even... Don, I can't get over this. The ignorant so-and-sos didn't even turn around and follow me, and I cut right at that blinking light down there to go the back way on Old Cherokee Road. And there was a highway patrolman or somebody in front of me and pulled the car in front of me, and he let me turn right on Old Cherokee Road. Can, can you believe that? Don, so you really want to be caught? Killer. At that time, but it's too late now. Don. What kind of car was it? Killer. Oh, well, they came mighty damn close. Don, they're not going to catch me, and I can't give you information because I've got to make it back in time, and they'll stop me before I get back if I tell you, but they're right. It was a red one, and I almost got caught three or four times. Don. Was it a red Jetta? Killer. Don, that's irrelevant now. If I die now or if I die at six o'clock in the morning, it's irrelevant. Well, listen, Don. Don. I really wish you would just think about not killing yourself. Don then put her mother on the phone. Hilda. Listen, I want to ask you something. Killer. This just got out of hand. This got out of hand. Hilda. All you had to do was let her go. Killer. I was scared. She... She was dehydrating so damn bad. Hilda. You could have called me for medicine. I would have met you anywhere. Killer. 
Well, that's irrelevant now. Hilda. I mean, all you had to do was let her go. Such a beautiful young life. Killer. I know that. That's why I have to join her now, hopefully. And, uh, Mrs. Smith, please, um, okay, well, that's it. I, I got to go. Hilda. Did she know you when you stopped? Killer. Yeah, uh, I took two pictures, instamatic, of I made her stand. Well, before she knew I was going to kidnap her, I asked her to stand by the mailbox, and you'll see by the picture, her car door. I think there's about eight pictures. Hilda. Do you know all of us or just Sherry? Killer. I know the whole family, unfortunately. That's why I can't face you. Killer. I know this might be selfish, but uh, you all please ask a special prayer for me. Your your daughter said that she was not afraid and that she was strong-willed. She uh, knew that she was going to heaven and was going to be an angel. And like I told Dawn, she was going to be singing like crazy. And when she said that, she was smiling. Hilda, did you tell her you were going to kill her? Kill her. Yes, I did, and I gave her the choice, like it's on the recording. I asked her if she wanted it to be a drug overdose, shot, or, uh, uh, suffocated, and she picked suffocation. Hilda, my God, how could you? Killer, well, forgive us, God. Hilda, not us, you. Killer, God only knows why this happened. I, I don't know, it, it just got out of hand. Goodbye, Mrs. Smith. We'll be back to true crime sleep stories right after this message. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With Aim are here to make it happen. With AIM is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers, your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit withaim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's withaim.co forward slash podcast. With AIM, be the voice of your brand. Don was able to keep him on the phone for a long time in order to get as many details as possible in order to try and identify the killer. The call originated 50 miles away in Great Falls, South Carolina, but again, no clues were found by the payphone. That Saturday, the Smith family held the funeral for Sherry and everyone in attendance was videotaped. Police believed the killer might show up. Shortly after the family returned home from the funeral, he called again and spoke to Don. This time, he wanted to let her know that he was indeed at the funeral and the police were too dumb to catch him. Again, he rambled on about killing himself, but Don took control of the conversation and put him on the defensive. The killer tried to make it sound like he and Sherry had become best friends and she was sharing all kinds of personal information with him, but Don wasn't falling for it and was growing sick of him. The full transcript of this call is also available at the appendix at the end of the book. This time, the call was placed from Augusta, Georgia, about 60 miles away. 
As per usual, no traces were found at the payphone. FBI profiler John Douglas was called in to provide a perspective profile of the killer. Douglas is now well known for his work on the Netflix Mindhunter series. He's most known for being one of the first criminal profilers and has interviewed some of the worst killers in history, including Edmund Kemper, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, Gary Ridgway, and many others. Douglas's analysis came up with a suspect that would be late 20s to early 30s, single, a blue-collar worker, lived nearby, had low self-esteem, overweight, above-average intelligence, and had a prior criminal record. He also believed that the killer might work with electronics or phone systems because of the voice distortion device used on every call. He also believed the tone of the phone calls indicated that he was an asocial obsessive-compulsive. Douglas also believed the killer felt a strong will to have a feeling of power but had never experienced it until this time in his life. Another week passed and the killer had not been heard from. Police thought that maybe he had done as he had hinted and taken his own life. But exactly two weeks after Sherry's abduction, the investigator's worst fear came true. At almost the exact time of day, it happened again. About a 30-minute drive from the Smith home, Nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was playing in the front yard of her home with her three-year-old brother Woody. Their father was just a few feet away inside their trailer home when a neighbor, Ricky Morgan, saw a silver car with red racing stripes drive up. A man came out of the vehicle, grabbed Deborah May around the waist, and threw her in the car while she was kicking and screaming. The car then sped away. Deborah May's father hadn't heard his daughter's screams because of the loud air conditioner running in the trailer, but was alerted by Ricky Morgan, who had witnessed the abduction. Terrified, little three-year-old Woody only said, The bad man said he was coming back to get me. The two men got in their car and went in the direction the abductor's car was going, but found nothing. Police immediately started an air and ground search. Their fear was that this was the same man that killed Sherry Smith. Police now had a witness that could give a description not only of the car, but of Deborah May's kidnapper himself. Ricky Morgan described him as 30 to 35-year-old white male, approximately 5 foot 9 with a protruding stomach, a short beard and mustache, and brown hair. From this new information, police now drew up another sketch of the suspect. Eight days had gone by, and there was no sign of Deborah May. It had been 14 days since the Smith family had heard from the killer when he called Collect once again. Don took the call again, but this time he didn't want to talk about Sherry. Killer, God wants you to join Sherry Fay. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year. You can't be protected all the time. And you know, uh, have you heard about Deborah May Hamrick? Don, uh, no. Killer, the ten-year-old, H-E-L-M-I-C-K. Don, Richland County? Killer, yeah, uh uh-huh, okay, well now listen carefully. Go north, well, Bill's Grill. Go three and a half miles through Gilbert. Turn right, last dirt road before you come to a stop sign at Two Notch Road. Go through chain and no trespassing sign. 
Go 50 yards and to the left. Go 10 yards. Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. Don. Hey, listen. Tiller. What? Don. Uh, just out of curiosity, how old are you? Killer. Don E., your time is near. God forgive us and protect us all. Good night for now, Don E. Smith. Don. Wait a second. Here, what happened to the pictures you said you were going to send me? Killer. Apparently the FBI must have them. Don. No, sir, because when they have something, we get it too, you know. Are you going to send them? I think you're jerking me around because you said they were coming and they're not here. Killer. Don E. Smith, I must go. Don. Listen, you said you were gonna, and you did not give me those photos. Killer. Good night, Don. I'll talk to you later. The killer was clearly now fixating on Don. He was now threatening her by calling her Don E. Smith and telling her that she would soon join her sister. Police raced to the location given. In the bushes, they found the decomposing body of the tiny blonde girl. She was clothed in her tank top shorts and panties, but over her panties were a pair of silk adult bikini briefs. Like Sherry, remnants of duct tape were found in her hair. Again, the unusually warm temperatures that summer had accelerated decomposition, and an autopsy was inconclusive. An official cause of death could not be determined, but suffocation was presumed. It also could not be determined if the girl had been raped though the odd extra pair of panties suggested she had. A pink barrette found near the body with a clump of blonde hair was shown to Mrs. Helmick. She confirmed that it belonged to Deborah May. As expected, the trace of the call resulted in no evidence. The killer was long gone by the time the police arrived. There were no witnesses, and the phone had been wiped clean of fingerprints. Police now worried that the killer had no intention of stopping and that Don was going to be the next victim. Luckily, the forensic document team would soon get their biggest break. The last will and testament letter that had been mailed to the family revealed more clues. Forensic document examiners were able to recover an imprint of a partial phone number from the letter and the name Joe. The phone number was a Huntsville, Alabama prefix, and the last four digits were only missing one digit, leaving only 10 possible phone numbers. Police called all 10 numbers until they found someone with the name Joe. One of the numbers belonged to a young man named Joey Shepard. When they searched the phone records of Joey Shepard, they found that he had received calls from a phone in Saluda County where Sherry's body was found. When investigators called Joey Shepard, he was quickly eliminated as a suspect. He didn't fit the FBI profile. They asked him if he knew anyone in Lexington or Saluda counties, and he replied, Yes, my parents live in Saluda County. On the evening of June 26, police raced to the home of Ellis and Sharon Shepard, just two miles from where Sherry's body was found. They were expecting to find their suspect, but were quickly disappointed. The Shepherds didn't fit the FBI profile either. Detectives decided to question the Shepherds and found that they had just returned from a six-week trip. They explained that they often traveled for extended periods and a local man that worked for Ellis, Larry Jean Bell, would house it for them. They described Larry Jean Bell as mid-thirties, white male, lived with his parents, had reddish-brown hair, a beard, and mustache. 
The description fit the FBI profile perfectly. Detectives questioned the Shepherds all night until the early morning the next day. During the questioning, they played the tapes of the phone calls for the Shepherds. Despite the electronic distortion of the calls, the Shepherds quickly confirmed that it was the voice of Larry Jean Bell. They told police that Bell had picked them up from the airport just a few days earlier when they returned from their vacation. The conversation on the drive home from the airport was dominated by the news of the two murders. Bell seemed to be obsessed with the murders. Mrs. Shepard mentioned that Bell had mistakenly called her Sherry on several occasions since they returned from their trip. He had also collected all of the news articles of the murders from the local newspapers. All of this fit the FBI profile of the suspected killer. Bell had been staying at the Shepherd's home while they were on vacation, so police searched the home. They found that a 38 caliber handgun that Ellis owned was missing. Bell was due to come to the Shepherd's home that morning at 7.30 a.m. to work. Police arrested Bell as he left his home on the morning of June 27th. After Bell's arrest, a forensic team continued their search of the Shepherd's home. In the bedroom where he was staying, underneath the mattress, they found the 38 revolver that Mr. Shepard was missing. They also found a blonde hair that DNA later proved was from Sherry Smith. During the interrogations of Larry Jean Bell, he admitted nothing. Hilda and Don Smith even came to try to entice him to confess, but he just mumbled nonsensically and said, This Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done this, but another Larry Bell could have been the one. Hilda told him that she knew he'd killed her daughter, but she doesn't hate him. Bell teared up, but still didn't confess. Bell made a mockery of the trial, blurting out strange comments, refusing to answer questions, and rambling and mumbling nonsense. One of his favorite responses to questioning was, Silence is golden. And at one point he yelled, I would like Don E. Smith to marry me. Larry Jean Bell was found guilty of murdering both Sherry Smith and Deborah May Helmick and sentenced to death. During his incarceration, he repeatedly claimed that he was Jesus Christ. Bell chose to die by the electric chair rather than lethal injection and was put to death October 4, 1996. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.